This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Covered in Pet Hair, a bluesy web show for pet lovers on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Isabel Alvarez-Arada, and today I have the pleasure of having a drink and a chat with a dog trainer that considers himself an expert on the bitey ends of the dog. I will tell you all about him and introduce you as soon as we come back from these messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Covered in Pet Hair. I'm your host, Isabel Alvarez-Arada, and today I have the pleasure of having a drink and a chat with a pet parent, a behaviorist. He's a dog trainer and an entrepreneur. He's an adventure seeker, a road tripper, a foodie, and a wine snob. He loves his craft beer and his coffee. He's a world traveler, a fitness fanatic, partner to Moira, who's also a veterinarian, and a specialist in separation anxiety. So we all know they're talking dogs at the dinner table. He's also dad to Kyan, a high school human who I'm sure gives dad a run for his money. He is dog dad to Castaña, which means chestnut in Spanish. She is a Chilean street dog. And he's cat dad to Renardo, who's also from Chile. He is a Chilean street cat. He my guest is host of the bitey end of the dog a podcast all about dog aggression and he's the founder of aggressivedog.com he's the foremost canine aggression expert and his name is michael shikashio welcome michael it's so great to have you on the show i'm really excited to be here and i gotta say that was the most enthusiastic introduction i've had in a long time so thank you isabel of course i mean look at all of this interesting facts about you i love learning all these things about my guests yeah it's, it's super exciting it's, as you're going through that it, it made me think about how much i'm like Chris Pockle, Dr. Chris Pockle, who you had on the show a couple of months ago or a little while back. <laughs> He's sort of like my brother from another mother. So. Yes, I know. You guys are the dynamic duo. I love it. So Christopher Pockle, if you haven't seen his show, I'll put a link to it right here so that you can grab a little another drink and watch after this show. But um, actually, should I call you Mike or Mike? That sounds good. Mike is easier to say. So we'll go with that. All right, well, that's perfect. But before we go any further, I want to introduce our drinking game. So anybody participating in our drinking game tonight, anytime you hear this word. The secret word is bite. 
make sure you take a drink of whatever it is you're enjoying but please be 21 and over to enjoy in the u.s and uh please never drink and drive always drink responsibly so what are you drinking tonight mike I'm actually drinking uh, Dogs and Boats, aptly named. It's this great IPA from a local company, Beard Brewing, which is local to Connecticut. And it's actually really good. Uh, they make all kinds of craft beers, but this one's like a double IPA. And um, I usually drink it in the summer, you know, when I'm on a boat with my dog, aptly named. Nice. So nice. A dog in a boat. That's the life. So I hear you're from Mystic, Connecticut, which is like this beautiful quaint little touristy town i have a friend who was just there last week how did you end up in mystic connecticut i moved down from i'm originally from rhode island and i kind of moved down south if you want to call it that about 30 miles but it's a long way for a rhode islander to move that far but uh, mystic is close to the casino foxwoods casino where i used to work that was my previous career before i started working with dogs so that's what kind of got me to move to mystic and here I am. I haven't moved away from Mystic yet, but uh, looking for warmer weather. Oh, nice. Now, so yeah, so a move south is on the horizon. Well, I'm actually having a hot toddy today because I, as you can tell, I'm feeling a little sick. And of course, it's fall, winter, and the bugs are all around us. My kids are always bringing something home from school. So cheers to you. Thank you for being on the show and forgive my terrible, terrible sounding voice, but we're going to get through this. You sound great. The radio voice is definitely still there. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. So I always start my show with a game. And I'm glad you told me to call you Mike because the name of the game is Mike Unmuzzled. Love it. Let's and, do it. And uh, basically, I'm just going to ask about you. We're going to talk about muzzles, but we're going to talk about muzzles in the second part of the show. This is all about Mike. And I want to ask you questions, but you got to, just like I did for Dr. Chris Pockle, you got to give me quick answers on this one. Are we ready to play? I'll do my best. Let's go. Awesome. All right. How long have you been training professionally? Ooh, almost 20 years. How long have you specialized in aggressive dogs? About 10 years. Who is your favorite TV trainer? Matt Beisner, because I'm good friends with Matt. Matt Beisner from Dog Impossible. Yeah. There you go, all right. What is the your biggest concern when taking on a new aggression client? Not getting my face bitten off. Are you ever scared of your dog training clients? No, because I wanna, I make sure I put everything safely in place before I start working with them. Really important part of the job. What's the worst bite you've ever sustained, if any? I was bitten by a German Shepherd about seven years ago, right on the leg, got me on the thigh, wouldn't let go, had to ask him politely to kind of release my, my leg, and he did. So thank you to that German Shepherd. That was a while, while ago, seven years ago. I've only been bitten three times in my entire career, fortunately, knock on wood. That's pretty good because I was a pet sitter for seven years full time. I then I was managing the business and I think I got bit three times in that time. So you are obviously doing something right because you're working with aggressive dogs and you've only had three bites. Yeah, I'm just, I, I like my body parts. So I try to stay safe. Yes, you're smart. You go about it the right way. All right. Have you had aggressive dogs yourself? I've fostered a lot of aggressive dogs and I have owned one tiny little terror. And yes, so the answer is yes. And then those are the dogs that gave me a lot of experiences. Uh, one of the best ways to learn is to have an aggressive dog in your home and to deal with all the management and having people come over and your own dogs and your kids. And yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's an adventure. My goodness. It definitely takes a special person. I don't think that I would specialize in aggressive dogs. I think I'd be too scared. So good for you for making that your uh, purpose and your mission. Okay, so this one's very, very simple to answer in one word or two. I'm lying. It's really not. Is aggression genetic? Sometimes. 
Oh, look at so, that! Yeah, it's most uh, most of the time it's learned behavior, but it it can be genetic because we've asked many different breeds to do different aggressive behaviors uh, as part of their work. So if you look at livestock guarding dogs or protection dogs or guarding dogs, definitely it's part of their genetic tendencies. But uh, it's always the individual dog, of course. But of course, if we're breeding for that, we sometimes will see it come out, just like we see a border collie herding sheep. If we've been breeding border collies to do that. Right, right, right. Okay, so uh, percentage-wise, how many dogs, pet dogs in the U.S. are aggressive or can be labeled aggressive? Is there a percentage out there? That's a great question. I think it's unfortunately increasing over the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic. But uh, you know, I, I wish I could give a definitive number to that, which I can't. I think all dogs have the potential to display aggressive behavior if you push them enough, and because it's normal behavior. It's normal, normal behavior. If we push any animal, including humans, to do something,、uh, or if we threaten them enough, you're going to respond aggressively at some point, right? Somebody's threatening your kids. What are you going to do? You're probably going to pull out Mama Bear and be aggressive towards whoever's threatening your kids. And dogs are very much the same. Aggression is normal behavior. So really, we could increase the percentage if we start doing awful things to dogs, which of course I'm not recommending. But that's it's important to understand. You know, aggression is normal behavior for any species to protect themselves, self-preservation or preservation of someone they love or they're attached to or something that they feel is of value, like a resource. Nice. Okay, that makes perfect sense. That's great. Okay, so are you drawn to aggressive dogs? Like, are you out and about, and you just kind of have like this like affinity with aggressive dogs? Have you found that? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I think you start to notice those things. You know, when you specialize in something, you start to see it all the time, and you kind of cringe when people are doing things on social media, or you see somebody out on the street and doing things. Like, Ooh, that could result in a bite. Most of the time, it doesn't. But、uh, yeah, you start to notice those things, and you yeah, so you're kind of drawn to it without necessarily intending to be drawn to it at times. And I'm sure many of the trainers that are listening in are are probably thinking the same thing. Yeah, you you start to see it when you don't necessarily want to see it all the time. Have you found that any pet parents are drawn to aggressive dogs? Like they kind of end up getting aggressive dogs over and over and over again. In some circumstances, yeah, I think. It's just like some people like to adopt the senior dogs and take care of them in their old age. Some people, you know, are drawn to more sport dogs, and I do find a small segment of people are, are kind of like the aggression aggression cases, but that's a very small percentage because most of the time, it's if you've lived with one, the last thing you want to do is have another one like that. Yes, yes, yes. True that. Okay, last question: Are all pet parents equally equipped to manage aggressive dogs? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, not.、Uh, but it's all—it's nobody's fault. It's really circumstances. What you're going through in your own life, your own culture, your resources, your family—you know—you could have four or five kids. Then they might not be listening to all the things you have to do to close the baby gates or shut the door or do the things you have to do. So it, it really is. Again, I never blame anybody for necessarily poor management. It's just circumstantial, right? For sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah, aggressive aggression is very multifaceted. I'm sure, which is why it's so fascinating that you're an expert in that specialty because it doesn't seem like the most fun way to go to work with dogs. So why? Why did you choose aggression as your specialty? I think yeah, it's not fun most of the time、uh, to have. You know, I I always joke that I can go weeks sometimes in my cases without ever petting a dog. And a lot of us get into training because we want to hang out with dogs and have fun with dogs. And you know, people think trainers like, oh, you play with puppies all day, but that is not the case, unfortunately. 
I'm drawn to the uh, reward of helping dogs and the families that they're in. So a lot of these uh, owners are struggling and the dogs are struggling. They're misunderstood. They're experiencing uh, all kinds of you know negative events in their life that's resulting in the aggressive behavior. And if I can help the dogs, that's the aspect of it that draws me to it. That's kind of how I got started in it, with all the foster dogs that needed help and being able to help them stay out of shelters and rescues and all those situations they got themselves in the first place because of their aggressive behavior and being able to help them stay in their homes or find new homes that's the part that really is rewarding so yes i love to pet dogs and hang out with dogs but i also like to help them make sure they stay out of those predicaments in the first place or to change up their routine and their environment so that they can be successful moving forward Absolutely. I mean, for those families, you are the most valuable dog trainer on the planet because only a specialist in aggression (laughs) can really bring peace to their home. I appreciate that. But there are plenty of other wonderful trainers and veterinary behaviorists and other animal professionals all around the world that are doing great work. So everybody listening in that that is helping dogs with aggression, thank you for the work you do because it's very much needed right now. Absolutely. It's such an important thing to do. I mean, I can't imagine... I had an aggressive dog. She passed away last year and uh, I had a young child and it was so stressful. She was older though. And we kind of managed it. We ended up muzzling her, which I'll talk about that in the second part of the show. But I can't imagine having just adopted her and having children and looking forward 12 years and saying, I have to deal with this for 12 years. I, I don't know how people manage that without an expert like you. All right. So speaking of experts, you have an acronym CDBC behind your name. What does that mean? That's a certified dog behavior consultant from the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. And you were president of that organization for five years. And you're also a member of the Association of Professional Dog Trainers, APDT. So how are they similar, those two organizations? They're very much like sister organizations. APDT is, uh, has a much larger member base uh, because they also focus on uh, dog trainers working in different formats like group classes and obedience trials and, and, and those kind of things. Uh, whereas the IWBC focuses on behavior consulting, so problem behaviors in dogs, cats, parrots, horses, and working animals, and, and shelter division now as well. So they are uh, mostly focused on when things are going all sort of off with the dogs or the cats or the other animals. Whereas APDT also does that, but they are more focused kind of on the big umbrella of dog trainers dogs specifically okay all right so i have to take a break but i want to talk more about like i said muzzling but we need to take a break listen to our sponsors and then we'll be right back so sit tight take a bite out of your competition advertise your business with an ad in pet life radio podcasts and radio shows There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com.
Welcome back to Covered in Pet Hair. I'm your host, Isabel Alvarez-Arada. And today I have the pleasure of speaking to Michael Shikashio, who is an expert in canine aggression, who loves to help families find peace with their dogs and manage their situations, which can be completely daunting. And I've been binging your channel, your interviews all week in preparation for our talk, Michael. And I saw a lot of references to muzzling and muzzling is something that you do a lot that you encourage people to consider for the bitey end of the dog that you deal with all the time. So I want to play a second game with you. And this is called muzzle time because I want to give you some myths and some truths about muzzling, which I may or may not have learned from you. And I want you to answer, tell me if these are myths, if they're truths, and you can elaborate if you'd like, because this is all about you sharing your expertise on muzzles with us. So are you ready to play? Ready to go. All right. All muzzles are created equal. Myth. <laughs> and because there's lots of different types of muzzles, depending on uh, the three things I'm looking at are comfort for the dog, uh, safety for whoever the dog's trying to bite, and being able to feed treats or food through the muzzle. Those are the three things I look for. So uh, depending on the muzzle you're looking for, you kind of weigh those criteria before you buy it. Perfect. Some dogs need custom-made muzzles due to size or snout type. True. Some dogs with a flat face, the brachycephalic breeds, you know, they uh, don't have a lot of real estate on their muzzle, so they can't have much resting on there. So custom muzzles will be able to take care of them. And uh, there's a couple of great companies, Bumas and uh, Trust Your Dog. They make custom biothane muzzles if you're looking for that. And there's a few other companies that have lots of different sizes to choose from. So when in doubt, you can always get a fit for your dog. And that's important. You want to make sure it's, it's a comfortable, secure, safe fit. Yes. Okay. So my next myth or truth is when ordering muzzles online, it might be smart to get a few in a few different sizes and test them out because it's going to be a process. Chances are it's not going to fit like a Cinderella slipper on the first try. True. Just like a pair of jeans you'd order online, you kind of want to order a few different pairs. Now, jeans aren't quite as a necessary thing for safety as muzzles yes. are. And their muzzles are a lot cheaper most of the time than a pair of designer <laughs> jeans. So, yeah. yeah, it's easier just to order a few different kinds, see which ones fit, and send the, other, the others back if, uh, if that's you know, possible to do so. Most most companies are just fine with doing that. So yeah, I always recommend that because then you don't have to send that one back, wait for the other one to get there because you want to be acclimating the muzzle in the meantime, getting the dog comfortable wearing it. And so yeah, it's I always say get a couple different kinds. But for the trainers listening in, make sure you're bringing a few different kinds. That way, if you're going in person, that way the client can try a few different sizes to see what fits and then you can maybe even sell in that muzzle if that's you know what you're doing. So awesome. Yeah. Yes, revenue stream. I love it. Okay, so dogs hate wearing muzzles. Sometimes. <laughs> so it's a true slash false answer depending on how you acclimate it. Muzzles should be just like anything else that a dog loves to wear. Like they see their harness come out. They come running over because they love going for that walk. And some dogs will see the harness come out and they go running because they got scared by the harness one time or maybe pinched their skin. One of the clips maybe just caught their skin or something like that. So muzzles are no different. We want to make sure that they're really comfortable wearing them and taking our time, slowly acclimating the muzzle, pairing it with food. Tons of great videos out there on YouTube to, to learn how to do that. But take your time. There's, there's most of the time no rush to get that muzzle on the dog. You have a couple of weeks often just to take your time each day, baby steps, get the dog to really love that muzzle. And that's going to save you so much trouble in the future because if the dog hates the muzzle. It's going to be really difficult to do any training with them when that muzzle's on. 
Yes. Yes. So you want to sweeten them up at the beginning, not like shock them and then try to sweeten them up after they're like, exactly. Ah, I don't like that. Get away from me. All right. So muscles are aversive slash punishment based. False. Uh, muscles are a management and safety tool. They're not really used for training. And if you're using them for training in the sense of trying to suppress behavior, you're doing it wrong because we don't want to suppress the behavior. The reason why is like you can put a muzzle on a dog and they'll be like, oh, some dogs, not all dogs, but some will be like, oh, woe is me. This is awful. I'm not going to do anything. So I'll just sulk and sit here. And a lot of people think, oh, this dog's well behaved now, you know, air quotes, well behaved because the dogs are standing there like, I hate my life because my muzzle's on and they're not going to move or they get shut down. And what that looks is like the dog is behaved, meaning it, again, air quotes. So the client or the trainer, whoever's looking at the dog, they're like, okay, it's fixed. So the dog's great now. You know, Uncle Bob comes in the front door, says hello to the dog. Dog's got the muzzle on. Dog doesn't try to bite Uncle Bob. But then the muzzle comes off and the dog's like, whoo-hoo, the muzzle's off. Now game is on. Where's Uncle Bob? Because I'm going to bite his face off. Because the behavior is no longer suppressed by the muzzle. So it's really important to, again, that acclimation route is so important because it's very easily can mask the behavior or suppress the behavior if it's used as a punishment or aversive tool like that. So you gotta be really careful. So you just said it's not a training tool. It's a safety tool that is used while you're training. Yes, it is very much. Yes. Just use like a leash or a harness or a baby gate or a front door to your house. Um, they're all management tools to keep the dog from going from point A to biting. Right. Uh, <laughs> very cool. Okay. Muscles are only used for aggression. False. So you have dogs that uh, like to eat stuff off the ground. Um, they like to pick up glass bottles or dangerous things. Who knows what's on walks, a dead carcass or something like that. And we want to prevent them from doing that and getting sick or eating rocks. A lot of some dogs do that. And uh, we want to keep them from injuring themselves. So muscles can be great for that. Uh, sometimes you don't know if the dog could be potentially a biter later on in life. Some dogs get injured, you know, you have an emergency, the dog gets injured. And when a dog is in pain, we never can know exactly what the behavior is going to look like because they're in pain. And again, it's normal, normal behavior for a dog or a human to lash out at somebody touching their painful spot. Right. And so if a dog has been acclimated already to a muzzle, it's so much less stressful if they're like, oh, there's that just that muzzle thing and rather versus, oh, I just hurt myself and I've got to get this weird thing put on my face. So it's going to be super stressful for that dog. So you never know when emergencies can happen. So there's lots of uh, benefits to using muzzle. Or let's say you have a dog you don't know how is how they are with people or other dogs. You have zero history. Let's say we just rescued a dog and dog seems good with people, for instance, but then we bring it home. We've got our other dog in the home and we're worried and we want to introduce them, but they're giving little look, little signals, but we're still not 100% sure. So they're not like barking, lunging and growling at each other, but they're just kind of like, oh, you're there. I'm here. Okay. What's your deal? What's your deal? And then we want to get them together, but we want to do it safely. So we acclimate the new dog to a muzzle over time. And then after a week or two of settling into the new home, then we introduce the dogs with the muzzle that the dog's like totally fine wearing. And then introduce the dogs just for safety. And if they get along, great, great. No need for the muzzle, but it's that safety layer to protect your current dog or dogs. <laughs> and it can be very, very useful for that aspect as well. So not just for dogs that have already been been there done that i had two female dogs that we acclimated together and they were all great and fine and then month two they went at it over my husband they were resource guarding my husband and it came out of nowhere and this was one of the dogs is the dog that i waited way too long to muzzle so yes uh definitely when introducing new dogs that's a good skill to have last question training a dog to accept a muzzle a muzzle takes forever sometimes 
okay. <laughs> it depends on the history. Uh, most of the time, it's very quick process. Within two weeks, most dogs are going to be fine. Some dogs I've had within two minutes be completely fine with the muzzle. It all depends on the dog, just like people are getting used to new pair of shoes or something that they're breaking in. It, some people can just throw on a new pair of shoes and they're off and running because they have no issues. Look at my girlfriend, Mario. She's like, throw on any pair. She wears like those those shoes that have no padding at all. Like She wants to be like one of those barefoot, like, yes, you yes, know, yes. Cake, cave yes. woman that just walk, runs around. I'm the total opposite. I need like, like cushion. I need to be like walking on the moon with like pillows under my feet because I cannot get used to like hard shoes. It takes me a long time. So, so each dog is going to be different. It could take a long time. Most dogs generally within two weeks, you're going to be fine. However, again, if you go with that, just slapping a muzzle on a dog, guess what's going to happen? Thinking like, I hate this thing. And then if you try to go back to taking this, the nice slow route, the acclimation route, that dog's like, this is horrible. I hate, I remember that. This thing is horrible. So it's going to actually take you much longer in those cases. So it's always, always better to just take your time, learn how to do it correctly and, and avoid so many problems later on. I love that. That's so true. We actually, when we finally muzzled socks way too late in life, we used pouches and we had little kids. So we had pouches and we, the pouches through the muzzle. She was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Cause she would see the kids eating it. And now she's about to eat it. And she's like, I don't have to steal this. You're just feeding it to me. Okay. Isn't classical conditioning so wonderful? <laughs> she's like muzzle pouch. Yes. All right. So you work with mostly with families that have aggressive dogs. So when you say like, let's muzzle your dog, do you find that because of their situation, they're more accepting of a muzzle than maybe the general population? It depends on the, uh, it's another, it depends question. Uh, I think it, it really depends on the client and their perception of muzzles. There's a lot of misconceptions as we were just going through all the, the myths and the truths about muzzles. And, and a lot of clients have their own perceptions about it. And a lot of them like, Oh, I don't know. That's like awful. Isn't that mean? Doesn't that like hold their mouth shut or doesn't it? It's, they're going to look like Hannibal Lecter. Nobody's going to want to talk to my dog. And so there's a lot of stigmas around the muzzle. And so sometimes I get that. But my argument always is that, or the way I convince them is that it's way cheaper to buy a muzzle than it is to settle a dog bite lawsuit, 1, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, that the average dog bite lawsuit is, it multiplies every single year I look at it in terms of the, the release statistics the insurance agencies do in terms of the average dog bite litigation lawsuit. It was like 18,000 like five years ago. It's up to like multiple, much more than that now and you know when you look at it that's the average dog bite lawsuit and the thing is most dog bites their the attorneys jump all over them because it's so easy it's it's like it's always the dog's fault basically right and when it comes to the legal stuff and so at least most of the time mm-hmm. and so it's it's just so much cheaper to get the muzzle to avoid those issues and you avoid getting your dog into trouble, like doggy jail or quarantine or animal control, uh, getting involved in issuing orders that you might not agree with. And so it's, it's much safer and just, you know, again, so many benefits. And when I start talking about those things, most clients are totally on board. I would say 99% of the clients I've had that I've talked to a lot of muzzle, I've been able to convince one way or another. <laughs> so yes. I've kind of had this, I've developed these scripts over time to, to help convince clients like, why a muzzle is so important. That's so funny because I come from a super uh, risk averse family. So like, I mean, the second a dog even shows a little snarl, they're like, what can we do to prevent anything worse? But it's funny to me that somebody going to an aggression expert for a dog that may already have a bite history has any kind of hesitation. I would be like, teach me how, where is it? Which one do I buy? Tell me everything. I'm getting it right now. But everybody, like you said, is different. 
Yeah, most of my clients are like that. They're like, just show me what to do because I, I, this is not safe. We can't live with this anymore. But you get, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, and it's understandable because, again, we're just a product of the stigmas that we hear about things, right? And so you just have to dispel those bits most of the time. People are like, oh, that totally makes sense. Yes. Right? I don't want to get sued. I don't want my dog to end up in doggy jail. You know, it all, it all works out. You don't want your kid or your grandkid or your friend's kid or your dog or whomever to end up being the next bite that really convinces you that a muzzle is necessary or causes all that trouble. So on the other side of the token, should muzzling be something like crate training where it's a skill we teach all dogs at some point in their lives? It would be nice because again, you never know when a dog's going to eat a muzzle. Most of the time, the vast majority of dogs, they're not going to bite. You know, the, the dogs put up with a lot from us humans, right? So they don't bite miraculously most of the time, but you never know. And it's, so it's just a good idea to have that. Just like crate training. Mm -hmm. You never know. Most dogs may never need a crate. And there's some countries, they don't even use crates. However, there's times, there's some emergencies. You never know. Veterinary visit, for instance, that they have to stay overnight. Maybe they have to stay in a crate or an emergency, or you have to transport your dog, or you're evacuated from a certain area, or you decide to go into dog sports and do dog trials and you have to crate your dog. All those things are really beneficial. So I wish uh, we would move away from sit down, stay, come heel to let's teach the dogs how to love vet visits. Let's teach them how to wear muzzle for emergencies. Let's teach them to socialize well with people and other dogs and, and not worry about sit down, stay, come heel all the time, right? Yes, teach them skills that actually help them in life. We're doing that with kids now too, right? We're doing that more so with children where we're like, let's teach them how to process their emotions rather than teach them how to like, you know, follow, execute directions that, you know, they may not be comfortable with or not know what, why they're doing them. So I agree. Like, let's do that for everybody. Let's teach them skills that'll help them in the long run. So what dogs should not be muzzled? Is there like with everything exceptions to, you know, who, who it's best for? I think it's more what situations versus okay. what dogs um you know there's plenty of dogs they don't need to be muzzled even the ones that are have a significant history of aggression even high level bite histories you know they don't need to be muzzled in their home if they've never bitten their owner and so it's it's situational certainly if uncle bob comes over and uncle bob's been bitten before we're going to need that muzzle most of the time so we're going to in a situational i think is more a way to think about it and that's really important because sometimes my clients forget okay this is a situation in which my dog might feel threatened or uncomfortable but maybe i can't avoid it as much as i'd like to maybe it is a vet visit maybe i'm living in the city and i can't get that much distance from people walking by you know so it's always situational and that's really the more important aspect because you know each dog is going to be different right Yep. You know, that reminds me of uh, why I muzzled my dog socks is because I needed her to go for walks with a dog walker. She had had a bite incident with a dog walker, not the dog walker. She bit somebody else. The dog walker got too close. He had been told not to get too close. The mailman was there. That's her trigger. She got all out of control, bit somebody. Luckily, it was a tiny bite and we did not get sued for a million dollars. Thank goodness. We thought we were scared that it might happen because we hadn't seen what she caused. It was minor. But I wanted to get a dog walker here in El Paso and I wasn't comfortable after that experience. And I was like, I'm not going to let a dog walker walker walk her if a dog walker doesn't remember or you know gets tied up in a situation again where there's a trigger and something i don't want them to feel terrible i don't want there to be drama i don't want somebody to get hurt 
So I started muzzle training her for that. And it was so nice to be able to be like, okay, the dog walker was doing all the things that acclimated her too. Like we continued that long-term like positive reinforcement training whenever she was wearing the muzzle. He was great about it. I was comfortable at home knowing that I was with my newborn baby and my dog was walking and not going to hurt anybody. So yeah, I mean, that was kind of like the motivation. It was very situation specific and it made such a world of difference. If you think about it too, it's like, it's again, at the general public, we often trust our professionals. You know, somebody's got a title like dog pro, whatever title it is. We're like, okay, this, they've got this, they've got this handled, but that doesn't mean so they can be the best dog handler in the world, but that doesn't prevent the other people from doing things. Right. Correct. So it's, it's like, you know, you could say, all right, I've got um, Mario Andretti or somebody like really like that knows how to drive a car and then, <laughs> okay. You're going to drive my kids to school. So, oh, so you're Mario Andretti. So you don't, the kids don't need seatbelts. Would you do that? No. Right? Because this, it's not, you, yeah, he's probably going to get you to the kids to school pretty safely, but you can't trust the other drivers. Right. So kids are still going to need seatbelts, regardless of who's handling the wheel, right? So same with the dogs, you know? You're like the king of analogies. I love it. I love your analogy. <laughs> That's how they, I convince a lot of my clients. Yes, no, it's so important to put things in pers- in the in the in terms that people can really understand. Like, yeah, I don't care who's driving my kids; they're going in their car seats, they're wearing their seatbelts. It's so true. And yes, my dog trainer felt horrible that the situation happened, and he knew, like, while he was in it, that he had put himself in a bad situation. And you're right; it was the other person who approached when he was saying, "Please don't approach." He's trying to get her back. The mailman's coming. The dog's completely out of sorts with a stranger, the mailman, all that. And there was nothing he could do. So there was no hard feelings, but it definitely taught me a lesson. So, and nobody wants to learn the lesson the hard way. I had to, but like anybody watching this, if your dog has reactivity on leash, definitely consider talking to somebody watching Michael's videos, educating yourself on muzzling. Um, there's a ton of stuff online, thank goodness, because I don't wait too long like I did. I really have. That's my biggest regret with socks is that I waited too long to muzzle her. No, no fault of yours, I'm, I'm sure, because you are you sound just like most of my clients in that, you know, nobody knows when it's coming nobody knows there's no like i never blame my clients because 99.999 percent of the time they are not doing anything purposely or like intentionally right it just it you know it comes when it comes it's like everything else in life when you you don't know it's broken until it actually breaks right 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 so you have a um, an aggression in dogs master course so tell me about that is that for pet for for dog trainers is that for pet parents who's that meant for and what does it entail yeah thanks the the um that actually was designed originally for professionals so dog trainers veterinarians anybody working with aggression cases but i found quite a few requests coming in from pet parents that were looking for something to help their dogs so at first i was like yeah it might be a little bit you know a little bit some of the language in the course might be a little bit um not what you're used to hearing you know in terms of the scientific terms but um, they're like that's okay we just want to learn and they take the course and they love it because it actually they they can actually learn a lot and they, it's interesting because they see it from the trainer perspective so i'm i'm talking like two trainers so they get to hear like what it sounds like when you know you're kind of like listening to the trainers talk to each other and so they actually love that aspect of it so now i just you know anybody who's interested can, can take it anybody who wants to help their own dog or learn learn more about working with aggression in dogs can take it and it's all on demand and anybody can join at any time and then they can join uh, mentor sessions with me after they complete the course that is so cool so what kind of tools do you use in aggression cases what is like your toolbox 
So great question. The um, obviously I focus on positive reinforcement based methods, and um, when if you start looking at the technical terms, um, I focus on using desensitization and counter conditioning and differential reinforcement strategies, which is just a fancy term for what do we want the dog to do instead of biting Uncle Bob's face off, uh, and so like different behaviors that we can reinforce other than. Um, so that's in the most simplistic terms. But I go into all of the other types of approaches that are out there, whether it's um, using straight desensitization, using addressing the underlying emotional aspects, looking at the medical issues. So uh, there's there's many many layers to it, but the foundational aspects starts with that, and then we adjust accordingly depending on the case. Uh, because most of most aggression cases are going to do quite well with desensitization and counter conditioning because the underlying association is it's a, a negative association or it's fear based. Uh, it's the other types of cases, you know, a dog that's maybe not fearful that we have to adjust our behavior plans. But most of the time, you're going to be safe with just a straightforward desensitization and counter conditioning approach and a differential reinforcement strategy layered in there, uh, which is again changing how the dog feels about Uncle Bob coming in and asking the dog to do something else when Uncle Bob comes in. That's the most simple way to put it. I love it. I love it. So I worked with, I, I had a consul consultation with a dog trainer ages ago, a very good one. Her name is Peggy and she, I don't know if she still runs it. She may be retired now, but she was with Sun Dogs in Northern Virginia. And she told me in our conversation about my two females that fought at home. She told me that dogs don't want to bite. Dogs don't want to fight, that it's too much of a risk that they really don't want to take. And they only take that risk when they feel like they don't have another choice. Would you agree with that? Most of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. The vast majority of dogs, it's very expensive behavior in, in it, right. from an That's ethological perspective. It. Yeah. From an ethological perspective, it is not uh, good for an animal out anywhere to exhibit aggressive behavior or, or engage in overt aggressive behavior because they risk injury to themselves. Right. From an evolutionary standpoint, it's actually not very efficient to do that. So yeah, the vast majority of dogs, they just want to give the least amount of effort or overt behavior towards making something scary or threatening go away. Um, and if they accomplish a task with a growl, great. But sometimes they have to escalate to biting because the growl wasn't working before. So uh, those are that's the vast majority of dogs. However, there is a small percentage of dogs, they are going to use, use aggression for sports where they're having fun doing it because that is what we've asked them to do for many generations as humans, we've asked them to guard property or ask them to fight each other, sadly, or ask them to fight, you know, bulls in the ring and all these, these, you know, um, things that uh, unfortunately humans have asked dogs to do over the years. So those are the small, the small percentage of dogs. I'm going to stress that it's a very small percentage of dogs that are actually going to engage in the sport or the fun of it. And you can usually tell right away and the treatment plan is a little bit different. So how we address that, uh, it's much more, uh, the differential reinforcement side of things where we're asking the dog to do other things because we're not trying to change an underlying emotion there where they're having a good time, so to speak. And so we're often not trying to change their association. We're just trying to teach them other things to have fun or that are reinforcing for them. So uh, in small percentage of cases, I don't want anybody to think like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have, I've got that type of dog. It is not <laughs> common at all. Uh, and in the case, like you, for instance, drug dogs you were just talking about, it sounds like just typical competition over yes. something of value, your husband. So yes. that can happen. And it happens often in, in my cases. Yes, yes, yes. Resource guarding is really a big deal. And it's pretty common. So yeah, Ugh, it's something that probably gets ignored until it escalates. And then they come to you.
It's the number one reason for dogs to have conflicts in the home, resource guarding, or competition over something they find of value, whether it's food, toys, resting spots, or people. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, one more question, and then I'm going to get into your conference you just had. But do you find that, and I believe science may have answered this in a way, I just noticed that my kids messed with my covered in pet hair. Did you see this? <laughs> this whole time, it, it still does the job. Covered in pet hair. <laughs> It still does the job. I still, it does I still the job. I just I realized looking back, I have to check my set more often. Okay. But this is actually a very important question. Do you find that people who have worked with aversives and punishment-based training encourage aggression? That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't think anybody in the dog training world, most people don't get into this to make things worse right, right for the dogs so yes there's you know so let's differentiate that there's some trainers of course working to train dogs for protection or to display aggressive behavior so police dog trainers schutzen french ring mondial those kind of sports or actually true protection of estates or uh, livestock or people whatever it is so they've got that 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 actual which is fine i mean that's they're doing that for a particular task or set of tasks for those particular dogs now that being said i don't think anybody's really getting into it using aversive saying i want the dog to be more aggressive because that right. would actually be the antithesis to what they're trying to do is trying to help, you know, help the dog but that being said you know the issue with of course with punishers is that you have the risk of potential fallout or side effects where you're not really addressing the underlying emotion or motivation and emotions drive behavior so if we don't address that we're not going to necessarily address what's fueling that right it's all that gas and that engine that is fueling the aggressive behavior we can put the brakes on and we're going to stop the behavior for a moment using an aversive or a punisher but that engine and that gas is still running and eventually those those brakes are going to give way and somebody's going to get bitten so yeah it's it's and again no fault of any. I'm not blaming anybody right. or criticizing anybody. I was a, I'm a crossover trainer myself. I used to use punishers and aversives. I'm very familiar with all the different tools to do that. Uh, and it works at on paper or at face value at first. And then you start seeing enough cases where, okay, it works until it doesn't. And then the dog resorts back to it because I haven't addressed how that dog feels Got about it. Uncle Bob coming in the home. I want that dog to really look forward to Uncle Bob coming in the home rather than I'm just going to be punished for growling at Uncle Bob, but I still hate Uncle Bob. Right. So, well, does it inevitably make it worse or could it make it worse? Using aversives? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Because what can happen is the opposite of what, let's say we've got Uncle Bob coming in and throwing treats at the dog. Sometimes, a lot of times, the dog's going to be like, this guy's not so bad after all, because every time Uncle Bob shows up, I'm getting steak. All right, come on in, Uncle Bob. You're okay with the family. So you get that association built. But what if the opposite happens? Every time Uncle Bob comes in, somebody is punishing the dog, whether it's, uh, you know, correcting the dog on a collar or throwing something at a dog or whatever method is used to suppress the growling and lunging at scary Uncle Bob. The dog's gonna be like, okay, I won't growl at lunch because I'm gonna get punished for it. But how's the dog feeling about Uncle Bob? Uncle Bob's gonna be like, every time Uncle Bob comes over, something bad happens to me. I'm gonna get something thrown at me or something scary is gonna happen. So we're doing the exact opposite of what we're trying to do is trying to make the dog feel better about Uncle Bob. So that's why that's the risk of it. It can work, sure. You can get a dog to stop doing anything if you have the right aversive. You just won't be addressing the underlying emotion and sometimes you're gonna make it worse. That's that's a scary part of it where you think it's working and then you see that 
it failed you entirely. So you just uh, finished up your aggression in dogs conference uh, and you did it virtually this year, correct? Yes, we were in how Chicago. Many, how many years did have you done this conference? That was the second year and we're doing a third year in Providence, Rhode Island next year. It's going to be in person and live streaming. So I'm excited to get people back in person because that's where the magic happens at those dog training conferences. You know, you get to connect and meet and just, you know, talk to people. And it's just, it's so much better than the online aspect. Not that the online was bad, but it'd be great to see people in person again. Yes. That's actually what fueled this show is I missed my conferences and my colleagues and I wanted to have a drink with people that wanted to talk pets. So this is where I uh, got the idea. So yeah, I totally agree. I missed the in-person conferences. So what were the highlights this year for you? Oh, the connection, the connection between the speakers. You know, we did our best to connect with the audience. So we had really great chat box and we had options for people to ask questions and things like that. But I never planned this. Like I, I just started making a list of the speakers and trying to, you know, connecting with people to get them to come to the conference and talk in Chicago during a pandemic, which was <laughs> a hurdle on its own. But we've had, you know, 11 great speakers, 12 actually come out and the connection was just, just magical. So, cause everybody started talking about the same thing. And the theme this year was choice and control and agency and empathy and kindness and all the things that we really need during a pandemic to really shift our moods and get us thinking um, again about, you know, what's happening in up here and rather than focusing on just behavior all the time. So we're really looking at emotions. And that was just the magical part about it because um, everybody was just connecting so well and everybody was talking about the same thing in all the talks. Nobody was like, oh, all right, so we're going to talk about this. Like literally everybody was talk after talk was just talking about kindness and empathy and connecting with our clients and connecting with the dogs in, mu in a much more deeper level than just looking at behavior. So yeah, it's, uh, that was the highlight for sure. That is awesome. That's actually something I talked about with Dr. Pockle that I love that we're looking deeper into the psyches of our dogs more than just what can they do for us? Do they have a bellyache? But like, how do they feel? And I, and I have another show coming up where I interviewed a dog trainer who specializes in dog and canine mental health, which is a term she coined and her name is Jenna and she's wonderful. So look out for that one. If you are uh, looking to learn more about canine mental health and emotional well-being. So tell us how our uh, audience can learn more about you, Mike, if they haven't heard about you, which I'm sure so many of our viewers have. So how do they find out more about you and your programs? I, I appreciate that. Yeah, the easiest way is the to remember is aggressivedog.com. I mean, what else uh, could you ask for in a domain name <laughs> that I bought like many, many years ago and I finally actually got it up and running a few years back. But yeah, everything I do there is there. So they can find the podcast, the conference, all the courses and webinars and everything else that's happening. There's art, great um, articles from, I have some guest bloggers coming in to write about aggression and dogs. So it's going to be like, I'm, I'm hoping to be like the hub for helping dogs with aggression around the world. So not just the US, I'm going global with everything and trying to help as many dogs as I can uh, that have aggression issues uh, using humane, uh, positive-based methods and um, hopefully just continues to spread. And that's my goal with it. So aggressivedog.com, easy That to is awesome. I would love to have you back to talk about dogs and culture and how they that varies one day if yes. you're up for it. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Oh. I've got some exciting things in the works for that particular topic. So it's yeah, I'm fascinating, to truly, because we have to change the, I guess, the perspective of a lot of cultures before we can really change the outcomes for the dogs there, right? 
Absolutely. Yes. There's a lot of things that we can learn from each other. That's true. Very much so. Well, I just want to propose a toast to you for all of the wonderful work you do for all of those aggressive dogs and families dealing with that. Uh, Here's to you. Cheers. Thanks for being a guest on my show. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Cheers. I also want to propose a toast to our executive producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible and to our viewers on YouTube and our listeners on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for spending your time with us. Here's to a life covered in pet hair because there's no better way to live. Cheers. To learn more about Covered in Pet Hair, please visit CoveredInPetHair.com or PetLifeRadio.com. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next time. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.